Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to um, One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Mary Woods. And today we have a fascinating um, show for you, which um, I think everybody's going to find very interesting. Um, Our topic is Ernest Hemingway, and um, we're going to talk about his his life and um, his work from a psychiatric perspective. So um, our guest today is Dr. Christopher Martin, who is the medical director of the Compass Young Adult Program at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. He is also an assistant professor in the Menninger in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. In addition to his duties on the Compass Unit, Dr. Martin has a significant teaching schedule at the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Baylor College of Medicine, Menninger's collaborator and affiliate. Baylor medical students as well as psychiatric, psychiatry students in their second year and fourth years receive on-site training at the Menninger Clinic or at a number of other collaborative venues. Dr. Martin teaches physicians who are on track toward becoming psychiatrists. He also teaches medical students who have not yet chosen a path for their careers. During his training, he was chief resident and received several awards that include the Eugene Kahn Award for Excellence in Psychiatry in 2005, the Menninger Department of Psychiatry Resident Teacher Award in 2005, the Janssen Psychiatry Resident Excellence Award in 2003, and the Hilde Bruch Award for Excellence in Psychiatry in 2001. And did I say her name right? It's Hilde Bruch. Hilde Bruch. Well, I was close. Absolutely. Thank you so much for agreeing to do our show today and to talk to us about a fascinating man and a very, um, a man who's often referred to in both psychiatric um, health services and addiction health services as someone who has uh, certainly a very public um, illness, both uh, his mental illness and his substance use disorders. So how did you become interested in, in Ernest Hemingway? Well, thank you, Mary, for that introduction. It's great to be here. Um, I'm happy to, to talk with you about Ernest Hemingway and psychiatry. Um, I first became interested in, in Hemingway when I was in college. I was an English major, and one of my most dynamic professors uh, was particularly fond of Hemingway and his works, and uh, that's Dr. Peter Balbert, who uh, was at, at Trinity University. And uh, he would tell us stories about Hemingway's life, and the stories were just captivating. And I really enjoyed reading his novels, loved his language and the way that he wrote, and having this fascinating life story on top of that has really got me interested in uh, Hemingway as a person. I started reading biography at that time. And then it was later when I was doing my uh, psychiatry training in residency when Hemingway returned to my mind in a, in a new way, and I began to understand what he experienced uh, from a, a psychiatric perspective, his experience with mood problems and alcoholism and trauma, and uh, that got me re-excited about him in a new way, and then I started thinking about how interesting and helpful it might be to share his story with people as a way of teaching them about psychiatry as well as teaching them about Ernest Hemingway. 
Well, and you have an article published in the uh, Psychiatry, Interpersonal, and Biological Processes, a journal of the Washington School of Psychiatry. And um, can we let folks know how they can get a hold of this article? They can get a hold of that article by contacting me. Okay. And they can Uh, do that by phone or by email. Would you like me to give you my email address? Sure, that'd be great. That's C. Martin. C-M-A-R-T-I-N at Menninger.edu. That's M-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R dot E-D-U. Okay. So tell us a little bit about Ernest Hemingway. Well, as, as many of us know, of course, he's one of the most recognizable figures of the 20th century. Um, he not only is known for being a brilliant author, someone who really re conceptualized how people write fiction and novels. He's not only that great artist, but also someone who became a, uh, a figure uh, across the world, really, uh, uh, this larger-than-life figure associated with things like Americanism and masculinity, hunting, fishing, bullfighting, boxing, and just being this very large personality. Um, so he's someone who we're all very familiar with in many ways, um, but also someone that I think we don't know as much about as you might think we would for someone who is so photographed and, and such a celebrity and, and such a part of our culture. Um, we don't always think about his inner experience, which was very rich and, and, and fascinating. Um, you know, he had um, a, a childhood that was... Uh, something that he did not write about, something he didn't share publicly, but really, I think, colored a lot of his future experience, of course, um, in, in regards to how he and his parents related to one another. And also, he had this um, genetic background that predisposed him to developing some significant psychiatric illnesses. Well, his um, parents were uh, an unusual couple, I mean, in terms of that two people with such... Um you know, fascinating histories could could meet and, and decide to fall in love. I think that they were both significantly challenged by their own kind of inner demons. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about his mom and dad. Yes, sure. Well, his um, father, Dr. Hemingway, uh, is a, a physician, um, someone who was uh, brilliant and uh, a very vibrant person um, who, who did struggle with, as you said, some inner demons. Um, he had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder retrospectively um, through scholarship that has been done, and the Hemingway family uh, had talked and written about their experiences with him, with his mood swings that could be very unpredictable, and um, also his uh, tendency to be pretty strict uh, with discipline. Um, and that could uh, bound on being abusive, one might say, to, uh, to Ernest, to his children, um, when his temper got the best of him. Um, of course, when talking about these things, I always have to remind myself um, that these are real human beings with a family, uh, and that in addition to some of these things that we talk about um, that might be um, diagnosable, uh, they're also people with a lot of strengths and people who are, who are loved. So I, I hate to uh, fall into a trap of reducing them to something that can be pathologized. But, but some of this, that I think, is important to um, think about when you think about how you understand Hemingway himself. 
Um, so that's that's what got me interested in it. Um, but getting back to Ernest's father, he could be a very strict disciplinarian, and that was something that was very hard on Ernest, something Ernest carried a lot of anger and, and rage about. Um, his father also had a bit of a, a passive streak, as we understand him now, while Ernest's mother could be more um, vocal and, and domineering, and Ernest uh, certainly internalized that view of her. Um, that's a view that we have now kind of through Ernest's eyes in writing that he did in, in letters and correspondence, and sometimes uh, through the, a lens of fiction as well. So he sort of uh, came to blame his mother for difficulties that his father had. Well, and I think, and to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, is that the Hemingway family is extremely talented and extremely successful, and I think that their challenges parallel a lot of other families as well. And because they've lived such a public life, um, in many ways, they can certainly, um, their experience can help other people. Yes, I think that's a, a wonderful point to make. You know, and I and I know that um, having both struggled with major mental illness and a, and a raging substance use disorder, um, there was this very creative man who, um, you know, was full of life and, and accomplished many things. And we still have a wonderful legacy uh, as a result of his creativity. Absolutely. And that's so, part of what makes the story not only in some ways tragic, but also inspiring. Well, you know, one of the things, I think one of the myths that we have um, about creative people in general is that the, the mental illness or the, um, the substance use disorder is what drives the creativity and that um, some people feel like if they got sober or if they managed their psychiatric symptoms, they wouldn't be as creative. And I mm. wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, certainly, absolutely. Um, I think that as, as far as when you're talking about artists or writers, that um, all of their experiences inform the art that they produce. And so for someone like Ernest Hemingway, we can see in his work that his experience with mood difficulties, thoughts of suicide, family trauma, and other traumatic experiences has informed his work. Um, you take the story of uh, A Farewell to Arms, for example, um, where Ernest Hemingway writes about uh, the soldier Frederick Henry and his experience being wounded um, by shrapnel in uh, on the Italian front in World War One, and then hospitalized uh, for his recovery, where he meets the the nurse Catherine Barclay, the American nurse, and they fall in love and um, have a, a love affair, a uh, very rich, full love affair, and then she dies in childbirth. And then we can think about how this story came about. And Ernest Hemingway experienced something very similar. He was also in, on the Italian front in World War I and was serving there, was wounded by shrapnel with the exact same anatomic wounds occurring in the exact same geographical location as, as happened to his character, Frederick Henry. He was then hospitalized in Italy where he met an American nurse and they fell in love, his first love. And they had a relationship which we think was was not as full uh, full and fully consummated as the one in the story, uh, but one which was uh, a very important experience for him. She ended up um, breaking it off with him after he returned to America. Um, and then we think about, okay, well, then he sets out to write this story, which is very similar, but has these these changes made to it. So in, in some way, he's going over that experience, processing it, processing those emotional and physical traumas. 
but also kind of recreating some wish fulfillment um, that there might have been a different kind of love affair and maybe even a bit of revenge playing out with the fact that the female character dies in childbirth. So some wish fulfillment and some processing. We can think of that as something that was a, a sort of a defense mechanism for him, even the ability to write and process his experiences. So in that way, we can see how his uh, struggles informed his, his art. Do you, do you know through your research, did um, Ernest Hemingway see himself as, as his father? I mean, they, their symptoms seem to have paralleled each other. Their life, mm-hmm. um, in terms of their, uh, their mental illness, seemed to be very similar. Did he ever see himself reenacting his father's illness? I think, yes, he did. Well, first of all, it's, it's interesting from a psychological perspective to think about the fact that Ernest Hemingway nicknamed himself Papa. Yeah. So yeah. that says something about how he might have thought of himself as similar to his own father. And he also wrote about wanting to not recreate the experience for his children that his father's suicide created for him, while at the same time he felt this draw to, to actually recreate it. Um, We'll be right back with Dr. Martin to talk more about the fascinating um, life of Ernest Hemingway and his experience with mental illness and addiction. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Ladies, are you looking for a place where you can talk candidly about anything and everything? Well, here it is. Timeless Women Speak on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk about sexuality, age-proofing your career, finding your passion and purpose, keeping your brain power, keeping your marriage fresh, dating for grown-ups, plastic surgery, surviving our beauty culture, and much more. Tune in Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific to Timeless Women Speak with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly on the Voice America Women's channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Today, our guest is Dr. Christopher Martin from the Menninger Clinic Compass Unit, and we're talking about Ernest Hemingway, uh, psychiatric perspectives on a life and a life's work. Um, We were talking before our break a little bit about uh, how he related to his dad, and I know there was a, in your article, you quote a letter that he had written to a friend in that um, he had just 
suffered what was seemed to be like a depressive episode. And um, let me see if I can quote. The quote was, uh, had never had the real old melancholia before, and I'm glad to have had it. So now I know what people go through. It makes me more tolerant of what happened to my father. Um, certainly that indicates that there was a lot of... Uh, feeling attached to what happened to his dad. And do you know specifically uh, how his dad's illness and death affected him? It affected him very powerfully. And in other letters, he writes to friends uh, and mentors about that experience and talks about how he felt like his life was just pulled out from under him or shot out from under him is what he said in one letter. He used the shooting metaphor as if his life had been shot out from under him. And then on other times, we can see in some of his comments and in some of his writings this idea that he thought that was a cowardly thing that his father did, uh, which might be why he says that experiencing depression, as, as he says in the quote that you just read, he says it makes me more tolerant of what happened to my father, that he can understand it. Now, that's frightening also because he's saying in that letter, that he feels bad enough that he could understand why someone would take their life. So it says something about, I think, about the, the power of the depression that he had experienced as well. And this, was, this letter was written in 1936. So do you know what the treatment for depression would have been at the time? Treatments were limited at that time. Essentially, there was psychoanalysis, um, earlier forms of psychotherapy, and uh, electroconvulsive treatment. And there were no real medications available at that time, were there? No. Uh, really, only sedative medications, essentially right. anesthetic-type medications, not, not medications designed to treat uh, psychiatric illness. Right, right. So um, I think we need to understand that in 1936, having a major depression was a really severe, um, a severe experience in your life. There wasn't a lot of relief from it, and there wasn't a lot of known relief for it. Yes. You know. Um, Which would have made it an even more difficult experience than we would have now and an even more stigmatized experience. Right, especially for a male. Yes. Yeah. He had also written um, in his memoir, A Movable Feast, that Hemingway wrote, families have many ways of being dangerous. Do you know what he meant by that? Well, I can't say that I know know what he meant by that. That, that can be hard to to do with a work of uh, fiction or a memoir that may have some fictionalized elements to it. But what it makes me think about is that he experienced his family as dangerous in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I guess we can all think about the ways that our families might be dangerous to us um, or that there may be pain in some of those relationships. Um, I think that, that from the perspective of looking at his life, his family was dangerous um, in, in a variety of ways, potentially, and one of them through uh, genetics. I don't think that's what he meant, but I think it, it helped us think about him. Right, right. Because he had a fair number of siblings. Didn't he have four sisters and a brother? Or That's right. Um, and a few of them also suffered from a mood disorder as well and addiction. Yes, that is true. Several of them did. And of the six siblings, Ernest and his five siblings, three of them died by suicide. And a fourth of that six 
had um, a death that um, the family suspected might have been a suicide. Of course, these were also all children of a man who killed himself or his father. And so we know that that increases people's um, risk of, of, of suicide when a generation before that has happened. Yes, that is very clear that um, a family history of suicide greatly increases one's risk for suicide. Uh, we suspect and hypothesize that there may actually be a genetic component to suicide that might actually be independent of spe- a specific illness like depression or bipolar disorder. Well, certainly, once again, this family is a wonderful example of how gene- how strong genetics are and how um, when you look at the experience from his father to his grandchildren, you know, there's I think there's been a suicide in every generation, hasn't there? Well, there has not been in the generation immediately following Ernest, um, though one of his children, um, Gregory Hemingway, uh, also a physician like Ernest's father, um, his life was taken by his illness. You know, he had repeated hospitalizations um, and uh, was jailed for bizarre behavior in public that was due to his bipolar disorder. And ultimately, he died in a jail cell um, when, he, when he was incarcerated as a result of his illness, unfortunately. Um, he was, was picked up due to behavior in public um, for safety concerns, but ended up in a jail cell, and he died there. So he also had cardiovascular disease and uh, medical complications. But, he, he, of course, that mental illness took a toll that I think led to his death. And then in the, in the following generation, Ernest's granddaughter, Margot, uh, she suffered from eating, eating disorder, depression, a seizure disorder, and substance problems, and died from a phenobarbital overdose that was um, actually ruled a suicide in 1996 by the coroner, though the family has not accepted that, uh, to my understanding, as uh, accurate that that was a suicide. But if that was, that would make potentially the sixth within four generations. Well, it certainly speaks to the strength of the illnesses in, in, in this family and how other families experience similar illnesses, be it um, diabetes, be it uh, major depression, that, um, you know, that I don't think we can ever underestimate the, the family component to any of these illnesses. Absolutely. It is so true. The, the illnesses that affect us uh, are influenced by our genetics. They run in our families, whether they be physical or psychiatric illnesses. We know that um, he had kind of a, a conflicted relationship with his dad and that he at one point had said that he never wanted to do to his kids what his father had done to him in terms of um, suicide or dying young. And can you help us explain how he went from there to actually committing suicide himself? Right. Um, Well, I think Ernest Hemingway's relationship with suicide was something for him that was lifelong. Even before his father's death, we can see in even some of his earliest writings, things that he would write for school, even as a young person, that they would have themes of death and suicide in them. And I think that intensified, of course, after his father's death. 
and repeatedly then in letters to friends as well as in stories that he would write, he would mention suicide as something that he considered. Um, after his father's death, he started writing it about something that he would consider and also something that he wanted to avoid because he didn't want to set that example because he knew how bad it was for the kids, is what he would say. Uh-huh. However, undeniably, that did not change the fact that it was something that he was drawn to and perhaps drawn to even more so after his father's death. He may have wanted, on one hand, to avoid doing what his father had done, but on the other hand, he may have been drawn by uh, a desire to be like his father that many of us have, even though we might may take issue with some of our parents' uh, um, faculties. We may want to be like them all the same. And I think he may have experienced that. He, he started writing in letters that he would take his life. He, he wrote about it as if it was something that he predicted 20, 25 years ahead. He would be saying things like, uh, you know, um, despite how much I like life, he's going to be ashamed because I'm going to have to shoot myself, these kinds of things. Um, and it seemed that he had made that decision or that prediction about himself uh, many years ahead, even despite wanting to not reproduce what his father had done. One way he hoped to maybe be different was he, he hoped that he might be able to arrange his death in a way that it would not be viewed as a suicide. He wrote about that in a letter that he thought he might arrange himself to be shot in order that it would not have the same effect on the children. And we have to wonder if maybe some of this was why he pursued wars across the globe, why it was so important to him to get to the Spanish Civil War and World War II as a correspondent and why he would involve himself so closely in action and combat when when he didn't need to. He was certainly a risk-taker in many ways. Yes, Yes, there's also the sportsmanship, the hunting and the fishing, um, these pursuits that, of course, he enjoyed. He was raised doing those things, but he seemed to want to put himself at danger in those sorts of uh, experiences. He seemed more satisfied if he was almost harmed himself. Um, I know without having actually examined the man, it's really hard to diagnose him, but certainly there's enough written about him that um, when we look at a mood disorder, for example, he certainly seems to, there's enough written about him that it seems like he could certainly meet the criteria for a mood disorder. It does sound that way, and of course I I haven't had the opportunity to meet him um, or interview him, but Based on these letters that he has left for us, he's described mood states that sound like depression, and he's described other mood states of elevated energy and insomnia uh, and grandiosity that sound like episodes of mania. Also, biographers have commented on these sorts of things, so there is quite a bit of evidence from different sources to use to make a a plausible statement about there having been a bipolar disorder um, in Ernest Hemingway. He seemed to have a decreased need for sleep. He would be have episodes of mania where he would write, you know, fast, and he was prolific. And yes, he would stay up all night long writing stories, uh, and would, in a very short period of time, over just a few days, sometimes turn out um, five, six, seven short stories and send them off to his publisher. 
Uh, and then other times he would go for stretches without writing. And um, you could actually chart the, this uh, artistic production uh, against his mood experiences and see that in episodes of elevated mood he would be more productive and in episodes of depression less so. Um, you know, I think that oftentimes when we think about people that have mood disorders, self-medicating, especially in 1936, when there really wasn't a lot that you'd really want to embrace in terms of treatment, that the use of alcohol or maybe even other um, types of medications might be considered like this is how you deal with it, you know. I think so. And it was something that I think people discover pretty readily works in the short term to change the way they feel. Right. You know, and Ernest wrote about that in letters to a friend, Archibald McLeish. He wrote, you know, trouble was all my life when things were really bad. I could always take a drink, and right away they were much better. Of course, in the long run, that kind of self-medication makes things much worse. And we'll be right back to talk about um, that type of self-medication and uh, just about alcohol addiction in general. So we'll be right back to talk more with Dr. Martin. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children? and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Dr. Christopher Martin. And we're discussing Ernest Hemingway and his fascinating life from a psychiatric perspective. And, you know, having a mood disorder um, 
is certainly very challenging. But when you think about that in 1936, we're talking about very few forms of treatment that were known to be truly effective that weren't seriously debilitating. And in your article, you talked about as a youth, he was prone to stay awake in the early morning, drinking wine and reading aloud from volumes of poetry. And I think it's it's not unusual even today for young people to to find alcohol, pot, or other drugs as a way to kind of self-soothe and self-medicate when they really don't understand what's going on with them. Um, and I'm just wondering if, you're, if you see that at the Menninger Clinic as well. Yes, I work with young adults, so my patients are from the ages of 18 to 30, and many of them struggle with addictions as well as mood disorders and personality disorders. And uh, it's not uncommon in this group for these young adults to be having their first experience uh, with substances like alcohol and also cannabis around the age of 12. And things can take off pretty quickly when there's a genetic predisposition and other stressors in life and problems with depression and anxiety. Self-medication becomes a factor, and full-blown addictions can be developing in, a, in just a few years. And then you have a, you know, a teenager with a, a serious addiction in addition to, to other issues. And, and we know that he's, from what has been written, he was a very serious drinker by the time he was in the Army. And um, he was hiding his, his cognac in his hospital room when he was wounded. So That's right, at the age of 18 or so. Yeah. And his, um, what I think is also kind of sad in many ways um, is that he's, his drinking has almost been glorified. I've been to Key West, and they have contests, you know, um, at the bar where he used to go to, and, and the bar has kind of become enshrined. And, and in, in some ways, it's really sad that here's a man who's this great artist, has left this wonderful legacy in terms of literature. And, you know, we have Papa Hemingway lookalike contests and drinking contests, and um, I think it's kind of a sad statement on our culture. I see what you're saying. You know, as a culture, we have this bimodal relationship with alcohol. On the one hand, it's something that um, we as a culture praise, support, even glorify. And and on the other hand, it's something that uh, some segments of our culture demonize and uh, rail against. Uh, The way we got there, I think, is because alcohol is very complicated. Um, It can be pleasant and even have some healthful benefits in moderation and limited use. But when the use gets out of control, it is toxic to the body, and it causes problems in judgment and behavior that have enormous uh, repercussions for our society. So I think that's where that, that bimodal regard comes from. Uh, that, uh, and then you take someone like Ernest Hemingway, who had a genetic predisposition to addiction and also had these mood problems and self-medication, and alcohol then becomes a really a tragic thing. For that person, but at the same time, you have him writing about it and speaking about it in ways that are humorous and interesting, and uh, then that then those elements get picked up by uh, our culture and promoted, and we forget about the fact that it was toxic to his brain. It was making his mood disorder worse, uh, potentially setting him up for dementia later in life. Uh, that it was toxic to his liver. Uh, and that uh, he was, in a sense, drinking himself to death. 
mean, in his later years, when you see his photographs, it's uh, you see the sequelae of alcoholism. You see um, swelling of the face, red nose. You see the scars on his face from the falls that he sustained and, and other injuries that were related to uh, intoxication with alcohol. Well, in as early as 1937, he was having um, abdominal pain related to uh, liver damage and was told to abstain from alcohol. Yes, and he would have been 37, 38 years old. Right. And, and by, by that time, he young. was re- relatively young, absolutely. And, and by that time, he was drinking daily right. and aware that it was a problem. He, he would come up with rules for his drinking to try to regulate it only drinking on certain times, so forth, um, would try to reduce his intake based on the recommendations of doctors and his family, but ultimately was not able to do that. Well, and we also know that his his alcohol use certainly interfered with his marriages, um, because I, I do believe he became somewhat abusive when he was under the influence. There could be significant conflicts in the marriages related to the alcohol, yes. Um, and his third wife in particular, uh, by the history that we have, left him um, following a incident during World War II when he was hospitalized after a car accident and had alcohol in the hospital room with him. Um, he, he was attracted to very strong women. Um, I... I I read, um, a number of years ago, I read the biography of Mary, his last wife, and she was certainly uh, no shrinking violet. Uh, no. And and Martha Gellhorn as well was a uh, very liberated woman in many respects. Yes, strong women, uh, women who themselves were writers, um, journalists, uh, typically women who were older than him also. And he... He was married four times, um, three three divorces, four marriages, um, and talked about himself as someone who just wasn't meant to not be married. Um, but he would uh, have trouble sustaining a marriage, certainly. And um, what evidence do we have of the psychosis that has been talked about in his later years? What, what evidence do we have of that? He spoke in his later years when his uh, mood disorder was, um, you know, causing him the most severe problems. When he would be depressed, he would be also developing delusional thinking. He'd be making statements to friends about the fact that the FBI was following him or that he knew that certain friends of his were plotting to kill him by running him over with their cars. This, this, this delusional thinking, these fixed false beliefs, we call them, um, are a psychotic symptom, a symptom of a thought disorder that was developing. That could have been due to a combination of factors. When bipolar disorder becomes severe enough, there can be psychotic features uh, associated with it. Also, um, the brain damage that occurs related to chronic alcoholism can lead to dementia, which can have psychotic features. Certainly the head injuries that he sustained, of which there were many, unfortunately, uh, these traumatic brain injuries can also set someone up for developing those kinds of symptoms. So later in his life, he had a number of reasons why he might have been developing those very severe psychiatric symptoms. Um, Given what we know about Ernest Hemingway today, what would his prognosis be if he were 37 years old today? It could be good. 
it could certainly be good because you know that these illnesses are while common and serious they're also treatable so with the appropriate treatment and motivation his prognosis could genuinely be what we would call good uh, he, there could be relief from the depression stabilization of the mood um, also with treatment there could be better chances at sobriety better management of post-traumatic symptoms that we think he might have had as well from his childhood abuse and from injuries at war and um, other injuries that he sustained. Um, we have many more effective treatments now. Um, that's one of the things that I like to communicate through this work is that this combination of illnesses that Hemingway had is by no means rare, but it is certainly serious with potentially tragic consequences. Um, but we're fortunate now to have great treatments, medication and psychotherapies, a number of variety of psychotherapies, as well as medication treatments to address addiction, depression, bipolar disorder, and these other psychological problems. Well, you know, it's, um, it's, in some ways it's such a tragedy that if he just lived a little bit longer, you know, maybe he could have had some, some relief. Um, yes, because even at the end of his life, when he was 61 years of age, in, in you know in the in the 1960s the early 1960s even then we did not have the treatments that we have today um, the very first antidepressants were just emerging in the late 50s and were not were not widely available at that point uh, to the public that didn't happen until until later on into the late 60s and 70s how long after his father died did his mother live. Oh, I can't answer that question off the top of my head, but but a great while. It was years. I'm sorry? They were, they were estranged for a number of years. Hemingway and his mother. Yeah. Yes. Uh, she lived on after his father's death, and he blamed her for that, for that suicide. Um, he had written things like... Um, you know, that woman would have driven a pack mule to suicide, much less poor bloody father. And he wrote in letters to friends about how he hated his mother. Uh, His friends were surprised to hear someone writing so openly about having hatred for their mother, but Hemingway was not shy of of saying that. Well, and didn't she used to dress him in very effeminate clothes as well? Yes, and and that's a point that's been been pretty controversial. Um, It is well documented that he wore dresses and was groomed in a feminine manner when he was a child, which was not unusual for that time, turn of the century in a Victorian culture. uh, Boys did wear dresses. But Hemingway's mother dressed him for longer periods of time, uh, up into, uh, you know, older years as a girl, um, and tried to pass him off as one. So there was genuinely something going on there, and he didn't like it at the time. He never never spoke or wrote of it later. We've found this out through other sources in the family, uh, through scholarship, but he, he hated that. Um, extremely complicated family that we'll talk more about in our last segment. Um, when we come back, we'll be right back. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. To savor something means to delight in, to absolutely enjoy. So why not savor yourself? Author and internationally acclaimed speaker Doris Smeltzer brings her message to the airwaves with Savor Yourself, Beyond Skin Deep. 
Plan to spend an empowering hour with Doris where you will learn to recognize your worth and your beauty beyond society's limited one-size-fits-all mentality. Savor yourself with Doris Smeltzer, Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. on the East Coast, only on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Christopher Martin, and we're talking about Ernest Hemingway, a psychiatric perspective on a life and a life's work. Um, you know, this article is is very thorough, and I think what it really does is it kind of um, puts Ernest Hemingway in a very human um, perspective, as opposed to the great literary giant or the the hunter or the man that committed suicide. And I'm just wondering, um, what, what's been the outcome of having written the article, Dr. Martin? Well, I wanted to do several things with this. I certainly wanted to teach people about psychiatry and psychiatric illness. And um, this man, Ernest Hemingway, and his work is something that's been so inspiring and interesting to me. I wanted to share that with people as well. Um, but I also wanted to kind of remind people about mental illness in a way that uh, helps us remember that this is a human experience. So there's this great, amazing life story here, uh, and I wanted to share that in a way that could uh, remind us that mental illness is something that happens to human beings that are vibrant and interesting and have great strengths um, as well as struggles in their lives. So I wanted to to use this prominent example to, to put a, kind of a new face on, on these experiences that are so so common to us. Well, and oftentimes people with mental illness and addiction get demonized in the press. They get, you know, we, we hear about the train wrecks, but we don't hear about the successes. And, and as you were saying earlier, um, both of these disorders would, are immensely treatable today, and the prognosis is very good. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the issue of suicide is one that I think we misunderstand 
sometimes as well. There, there's, I think, in the general popular culture, there's two ways that people look at Hemingway's suicide, either as something that was a weakness or a, a cowardly thing to do, or as something that gets a bit glorified, as that this was a, a brave choice for him to end his life on his own terms. It was neither of those things, truly. Um, it was a, a, a symptom of illnesses that he suffered from and part of something that is tragic, uh, and but also something that is, we think, preventable and treatable um, as a part of a mental illness experience. So it was really part of an illness that he had, not a failure or a brave choice. Well, and that we know that he suffered tremendously. He had like three suicide attempts within four days right before he actually um, committed suicide, didn't he? Absolutely, and they were made in a manner that had an urgency to it and a, a real sense of suffering and a sense that things were out of control and that he was not choosing something in, in a fashion that uh, had any kind of uh, honor or bravery to it. It was a part of a, of a disease. And the, des- and the desperation. Yes, there was, a, there was that. You know, I... Uh, you currently are working at the Compass Unit at the Menninger Clinic, and you mentioned earlier that, that this is a unit for folks 18 to 30. And um, could you explain to our audience a little bit about um, what it's like to work with younger, with a younger adult, so to speak? Well, for me, it's many things. It is uh, wonderful work to be doing. They are an exciting group of folks. Um, many of my patients, uh, like Hemingway, are bright, creative, intelligent, uh, fun, and uh, have great command of humor uh, and just a lot of energy. So I really like working with this age group. Um, we uh, are treating them now as a group uh, because that's what they are. They have some things in common. Uh, with each other that are unique to their uh, period of life that they're in, uh, developmental issues uh, for the young adults. So in addition to my patients struggling with personality disorders um, and mood disorders and addiction, they are all trying to figure out how to move from being children or adolescents to being adults that are going to be able to do school and work uh, with success, separate from their parents, um, and begin their own lives, uh, make their own families. Uh, and they are facing all the challenges that we all do when we, that we all do when we try to accomplish those tasks. Um, but they're trying to accomplish those tasks while also suffering from significant illnesses. So it makes that time particularly difficult for them. And it's a particularly unique thing for them to be experiencing. Um, so that's why we, we kind of treat them as a, as a group that has some unique characteristics. And they benefit from being around one another. Um, I think their experience when they're with us in the hospital, um, the experiences they have with their peers are some of the more important experiences they have while, they're, while they are our guests. Well, I know from a treatment perspective, one of the challenges that I've experienced with folks that age is that the develop, being able to assess the developmental process in addition to um, whatever the psychiatric symptoms are and the substance use misuse or, or addiction, and that it's, it's very complicated. The assessment is very complicated. Yes, it is, and it, um, it is complicated by a number of factors. Uh, 
one of them being that our patients have a variety of problems. They're usually coming to see us because other treatments have not worked for one reason or another. So we have to sort that element out, figure out why they're stuck in treatment, help them get unstuck. Um, but also, um, they are at an age where these various problems that we're trying to identify are just emerging. The most serious psychiatric illness emerges around late adolescence or early adulthood. And so the illnesses that they, they may have are still defining themselves and may not be readily identifiable as a discrete entities. And so it can make that all the more complicated. Also, the family element is is often, if not always, crucial. The relationships that they have with their, their parents are influencing everything that they do. And sometimes those relationships have element to them that are not adaptive. And then we have to sort out what's going on in the family as well as what's going on with the individual patient. What are typical um, evidence-based practices for, um, for folks in this age range? Are there any? Well, this uh, age range as a uh, specific unique cohort that we deal with is just emerging. So that evidence base is emerging now. Um, we use evidence-based uh, treatments here with them, however, based on the components of the illnesses that we're dealing with. So we, we know that we have an evidence base for the medications that we use for certain diagnoses in the psychotherapies. Um, dialectical behavioral therapy uh, has a very strong evidence base for use with borderline personality features, for example, and, and many of our patients have some of those uh, features and, and benefit from that type of treatment, uh, just as one example. Um, we are also dealing with complex cases, so we're we're not able to isolate just specific diagnoses because we've got we have patients with several different diagnoses at the same time, and so the evidence base for dealing with that situation is slim to none. So we are having to get pretty creative uh, in how we implement um, the evidence that we have to address these very complex scenarios. Um, could you tell folks how they could get in touch with folks at the Compass Unit or what families uh, might want to know about the Compass Unit? Absolutely. Um, you can contact us at the Menninger Clinic uh, through an 800 number. That's uh, 800-351-9058. And through that number, you can reach uh, our admissions office where we can provide information um, on all the various programs that we have uh, to treat any age uh, individual. And um, folks can find out what, what might make sense for them here at the Menninger Clinic or elsewhere. If somewhere else makes sense for people to, to be getting treatment, we can help with that too, help with referrals. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, this has been fascinating, and now it makes me want to go back and read some Ernest Hemingway. So. Great. <laughs> so you accomplished your mission. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Chris, and have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One Hour at a Time. We'll see you next week.